Hello and welcome to the Script M&A podcast. I'm Joe Haas, senior writer with Script, and our topic this time for our second podcast is U.S. Federal Trade Commission oversight of merger and acquisition activity. Uh, we're joined today by two excellent panelists, but I'm also joined today by my colleague Jessica Merrill. Hi, Jess. Hi, Joe. Um, I'm Jessica Merrill. I'm a reporter for Script and Pink Sheet, and I've been covering the pharmaceutical industry for many years. I cover a lot of the industry's financial news and M&A, so I'm excited to be part of this podcast, talking about more, uh, talking more about one of the pressing issues right now. And we're fortunate enough to have two guests joining us today, Dan Lepanto and Cody Powers. Um, I'm going to hand it over to them to introduce themselves. Dan, do you want to get things started? Uh, great. Thank you very much. Um, obviously, very pleased to be here. Uh, I'm Dan Lepanto. I'm a senior managing director in the M&A group at Learing Partners. Uh, for those who don't know, Learing Partners is a healthcare-focused uh, investment bank. I've been an investment banker for almost 30 years, and pretty much the entire 30 years has been spent focused on biopharmaceuticals. Um, so very happy to be here. Cody? <clears throat> Great to be with you today. My name is Cody Powers. I'm a partner at ZS Associates. Um, for those not familiar with ZS, ZS is a, a global consulting firm uh, predominantly focused in healthcare and the life sciences. Uh, I lead our portfolio and business development practice at ZS. Great to be with you today. Thank you both. Uh, I think we have a really timely and interesting topic today. Just setting the stage. Um, it's an interesting time in the pharmaceutical industry when it comes to regulatory oversight of mergers and acquisitions. It seems as though the U.S. Federal Trade Commission may be taking a more hardlined approach to reviewing mergers to determine if they are anti-competitive. Uh, there have been two large mergers announced during the past year within the biopharmaceutical industry, Amgen Horizon and Pfizer CGen, and people are watching those both closely. Until recently, the FTC had been holding up the Amgen Horizon deal on unexpected grounds. Amgen's rebating tactics and tying rebates for some drugs to other products are not un entirely uncommon practice in the industry known as bundling, but not something the FTC has focused on before to try to halt a merger. Amgen and the FTC have since reached a settlement and the deal appears on track to close in the fourth quarter now that Amgen has agreed not to bundle a Horizon product with an Amgen product, but it raises questions about the agency's authority and implications for future deals. Yeah, and meanwhile, uh, the Pfizer CGen deal doesn't appear to be facing the same kind of pushback from the FTC so far, but it's still awaiting clearance. The agency has made other moves recently to signal that it is taking anti-competitive M&A more seriously, including issuing a new draft guidance on M&A that lowers the threshold for when a transaction would be deemed anti-competitive. And in September, the FTC said it would uh, it would consider legal action against drug manufacturers who improperly uh, list patents in the FDA Orange Book and factor that behavior into merger reviews. So all of this comes at a time when big pharma companies are rich with cash to spend, facing a huge patent cliff that's coming in the middle of the decade, and they're looking to refill their portfolios with new commercial and pipeline products. Um, and that brings us to our discussion today around some of these issues and how the FTC's regulatory oversight could impact the M&A environment and how drug companies need to navigate the new environment to get business development deals done. So I'm going to um, 
turn this over to our guests and get this started. I guess one of the first questions uh, is just how relieved is the industry that the FTC and Amgen have reached a settlement and it appears as though this deal is um, on track to close. Is that a big reassurance for the industry um, or are they still a little nervous? I guess, Cody, do you want to get started? What are you hearing from clients? Yeah, I would I would say by and large, yeah, sure. I think people are somewhat cheering, if you will, in this case, for a particular outcome um, to see it go through. Obviously, it's status quo what folks are used to. I would say there there's still some intrigue about what will happen next. I think particularly in the portfolio contracting angle there, obviously, they use the transaction environment to really hone in on that issue. That's that's a broader question across all of pharma within and outside of any transaction activity. So I think people are very curious if that becomes a predominant lens that they look at the world through, if there are other extensions of this courtesy of some of the guidelines that were put out this summer. So I, I would say maybe there's a, a temporary reprieve, but I don't I don't think anybody sees it as like that there isn't more to come. I think most people would expect more to come. It's just in what shape or form and frankly depending on some of the strings attached that they signed on with Amgen, I think people will want to see more of that first. Dan? Uh, I, I agree with that. I think that the effect of the Horizon um, litigation was probably more long-term and widespread than a lot of people would assume because <laughs> it just injected additional uncertainty around how the Trade Commission is going to review deals. Um, this is not my opinion. This is just an opinion I heard. We had our uh, annual biopharma leadership conference out in Montecito last week, and I had the pleasure of uh, moderating a panel with a number of large pharma deal executives. And to the person, they all had the same view, which was, is there a message that the Trade Commission was sending with their litigation around the Horizon deal to, in essence, just add additional uncertainty into the deal-making boardroom. Uh, I joke that anytime you know, general counsels have the loudest voice in a deal room, there's going to be a slower pace of M&A because you now have the most conservative individuals in the room who are probably have the loudest voice. So I do think there was there's some concern around, was there a broader message being sent? I think if you actually peel back the specifics on the Horizon transaction, it is it is a relatively unique situation, right? In that you had Christexa and Tepeza, which were monopoly products. They had no other competitors. Uh, you know, maybe to some extent, there's this view that with this looming patent cliff coming for a number of large pharmas, you know, and large farmers haven't necessarily lived by their obligations under this sort of contract with America, where you give a pharma company some period of time to exclusively market a drug, and then when their patents fall away, they're supposed to have generic drugs. And I think pharmas in general have tried to combat that, which probably has drawn some of the attention of the Trade Commission as well. So when they see deals like the Horizon deal with patent cliffs looming, there may be some perspective that, hey, is, this a, is there a way that they're going to use some of the bundling tactics, et cetera, to preserve existing franchises? So I, I do think that that one had probably a little bit of a different flavor from others, but it did change the view that, hey, there's this additional concern that now we all have to take into account while we're evaluating mergers. 
Right. It's super interesting to see them come in on the rebating issue, which is such a complicated practice within the industry. And of course, bundling is not entirely uncommon. Are you, or do you think that people within the industry now are reconsidering their rebating tactics? Like, hey, we should back off. We don't want to be one of those companies that consider doing this. I would you like me to take that first. I can I can take that first. I sure. I I don't. The funny part about that is that, you know, if, and then this is public knowledge, right? So a- Amgen had actually offered to commit to not bundling with the Horizon product before there was any right. litigation. So that was offered up, and and the Trade Commission rejected it, and then sued them under the context of the bundling, the threat of bundling. Um, some of that may be a legacy of the fact that the Trade Commission, I think, um, or the chairperson of the Trade Commission had made clear that conduct remedies, so committing to not perform certain conducts, was not going to be re- well received by the Trade Commission. And so I think there may have been a signal sent, like, we're not going to accept conduct remedies in under the current regime. But then ultimately, I think they had to they had to because I'm not sure they had a lot of legal or statutory leg to stand on to challenge a transaction. Right. Yeah. I do think. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cody, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say on, on the portfolio contracting, I think it's always important to keep in mind it does take two to tango. This is not a unilateral form of decision all the time. Much of the portfolio rebate contract structure, um, frankly, for a lot of PBMs is their lifeblood. So I think it's easy sometimes to say that, you know, pharma may be initiating, but there are other cases. I think you've even heard some um, recent executive disclosure of whether it's PBM aggregators or other PBM related channels here that they believe are driving the ask in the decision making process that uh, I think uh, you'd, you'd have to essentially have systemic change both the pharma company itself, but also PBMs and the rest of the value chain who are some somewhat dependent on that structure today. Great. Um, so, so looking at the approach the FTC took here specifically in this deal, does this indicate um, a dramatic change in FTC's approach, or is it more of a subtle push to take a tougher stance? I thought I I, I had the impression that maybe. What ultimate, notwithstanding what you just said, Dan, that ultimately FTC wanted to have it in writing, uh, so really enforceable that Amgen would not bundle the Horizon products with its own. Uh, I think I think that look, I mean, the Biden administration had a executive order, or whatever it is, two years ago. That kind of called for a government-wide or all-of-government effort to increase competition and reduce or eliminate anti-competitive behavior. So, mm-hmm. when you think of it in that context, to view these as one-off activities, I don't, I don't think that's probably the right way, or I don't think that's how pharma's are thinking about this. I think they see it as there's been a regime change that there is now a perspective that drug prices, even though there's no evidence of this, but like that drug prices are somehow the the fact that drug prices remain elevated are somehow tied to the mergers that take place 
in the farm industry. And I think Cody made a very interesting point, which is editorial on my side. What's fascinating is if you actually read the Trade Commission's complaint uh, against Horizon, they actually reference mergers between, so vertical mergers, which have typically not been challenged, that's changed now as well, but vertical mergers that typically have not been challenged between health plans and PBMs that the Trade Commission allowed to occur, they're not pointing to that to say, oh, well now because of that, doing cross-market bundling, right, where you have two products that are in different markets, cross-product marketing, and then for cross-payer bundling can actually occur because we've now consolidated the payers into sort of one channel. And so now you can use these tactics that otherwise, if we hadn't allowed these mergers to occur, you couldn't have used those tactics. Those tactics weren't something to worry about. I just thought that was a very interesting argument. Like, hey, we've allowed consolidation in one industry. And because of that, we now have to focus more on consolidation in another industry. So it, sorry. But anyway, that, that you know, I find, I find all of those various threads is like somebody who's looking for rationale. They're not necessarily looking to the statute and saying, here's what the statute says, which was to prevent anti-competitive mergers. They're saying, we're going to start looking for rationale, creative rationale, maybe not even found within the statute, creative rationale to throw some uncertainty into the merger business uh, on biopharma. Okay, thank you. Um, I guess one big question is, do do we think like the, the recent settlement and if the Pfizer-CGen deal goes through, um, do you think that will trigger sort of uh, more M&A and maybe be more of a reassurance? And obviously the industry's up against this big patent cliff and the time is really ticking um, in terms of when of some, some of these big drugs are going to be losing exclusivity. Um, and I think the expectations have been there will be a lot of M&A. What are you hearing? Uh, Cody? Um, yeah, I, I think I would want to call out first. The Pfizer CGEN deal is very different from Amgen Horizon. Um, for example, it's in oncology, it's for ADCs. These are, if they wanted to play the portfolio contracting hand, it would be extremely rare that that, that would even mm -hmm. enter the conversation for that kind of treatment. So I think for that reason alone, it ha would have to be on different grounds. Um, I think, you know, what I'm probably more curious on not just these, that size deal, a larger deal. Now, if you started to get into the situation where, you know, $5 billion deals are being scrutinized at this level, I think that, that would be a real game changer. I think right now, one way I've been thinking about it is um, either they have one of two objectives, either they are legitimately trying to block these, or as Dan mentioned earlier, they're trying to move the window and add some of the regulatory restriction that they are looking to seek in general for the industry, not even specific to m necessarily, and use this as a vehicle to move the window and to move the discussion. So if you saw them act Pfizer CGEN additional stipulations or restrictions, closing conditions to be able to complete the transaction, um, and but they still let it go through, much akin to what we saw with Amgen Horizon, you're starting to kind of see this pattern emerge of, well, what are things that we, we are looking to accomplish in general and that the transaction becomes a vehicle to complete those things, not necessarily that the transaction itself is the quote unquote problem. You know, they may, may publicly voice it as the issue, but I think if you read between the lines a little bit here, I think there are some broader issues that they're trying to target that are not even specific to the transaction. Dan, do you have thoughts? I, I completely agree with Cody. I, I think you know, everybody talks about the impact of or the effect of 
the horizon deal on deal making. The fact of the matter is, I don't know my number's perfect here, but there were there were call it you know 18 transactions this year, and I'm including public and private. 18 biopharma transactions pre the four and a half months pre the horizon litigation, and then in the four and a half months post it, there have been 20 transactions announced. So it's not it's not clear that there has been like in the general deal volume that there's been an impact on people's deal making, but that deal making has moved towards smaller transactions. So yeah. I agree with I agree with Cody, which is if you guys remember when when they when the FTC did second or whatever third request on the Spark Roche deal, mm-hmm. I'll tell you that's when we really heard from our clients what is going on, like why what is it that the FTC is trying to accomplish in challenging the Spark Roche transaction because that fell into that category where folks just felt like it was a small add-on. They're adding a new modality in gene therapy. It wasn't clear that it, it helped some, how it would affect the competition in HEMA with Roche's uh, existing commercial product. And I think people looked at that one and said that that made a lot of people nervous. This, I think, th- these transactions, these mega transactions, folks expect that there's going to be FTC scrutiny of these deals. I do think the novel interpretation of the Horizon transaction did have probably more of an effect, but otherwise, completely agree with Cody. These are not going to change the general mindset around deal making in the space. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Roche Spark deal. That was really interesting to see them really delving into the pipeline, the earlier stage pipeline, a little bit more. Um, and the industry has spent so much time, so many years now, really focusing their portfolios and trying to stay in certain therapeutic areas and and realizing there's a return on investment in that. Do you think um, that is a concern if there's a need to sort of, you you can't stay within your therapeutic area with a deal, you need to to be buying a different, you know, modality, a different different therapy area to avoid FTC um, oversight? I think um, let me ask an answer in a couple of ways. I think one, if it was truly that literal that you couldn't grow within your therapeutic category, yes, obviously there would be a lot of a lot of people who that would pose a challenge to. I mean, fundamentally, the business of pharmaceuticals is built around that kind of synergy. If you take that synergy away, there's just a lot of things that you can or won't do. So I think in, in the most literal sense, then yes, that that would cause issues. I do think there is a degree of heterogeneity that is sometimes missed with that argument. So let's say, for example, you had somebody who was doing autoimmune deals in dermatology or GI disease. You know, whether or not someone's in psoriasis or Crohn's is a whole different ballgame from being, say, some rare derm cutaneous conditions or SLE or something like that that's totally far afield. So I do think, you know, the the definitions of how close something is still have to be flushed out a little bit more fully. I think to have people feel a little bit more comfortable and confident. I think right now people's minds can naturally go to darkest corner, which is basically everything synergistic and everything's overlapping. Even if it if it's on the skin, it's derm. If it's in the gut, it's GI. In the prior example, I think we're we're just so far away from having any kind of clarity on what level of overlap is acceptable there that I think they they would have to create a lot of precedent here and a much, much more strict interpretation here for people to really understand or feel that kind of pinch yet. So uh, going back to some things you said earlier, is the size of the deal driving the train here? Uh, if, if Amgen Horizon had been, say, a $5 billion deal, 
uh, even with Amgen's um, history of bundling and uh, Horizon um, holding two uh, monopolies in fairly small indications. Uh, but because it was a nearly $28 billion deal, was it that the FTC kind of felt like, well, we have to say something about this? I don't I don't think the size itself is totally predictive. I I to repeat like an earlier statement, I I do believe there were characteristics in the horizon deal that are you know, rel- relative relatively unique. I, I would say that mm-hmm. I would say that if if you if one wanted to take a holistic view and say, all right, so what is what is it that's going on in the entire environment right now? It's not just it's not just the trade commission, right? You have the IRA as well. That's sort of in the backdrop that is also has an impact on deal making. So if one were to say, what are the therapeutics that are generally exempt, at least first indication, generally exempt from the IRA price negotiation? Well, it's, it's orphan drugs. And so, is it possible that the trade commission is trying to send a signal that this is back to the sort of white space comment you were asking, moving into areas where you're not clearly competitive with non-horizontal acquisitions of products, you know, could the trade commission be saying, hey, we're concerned that folks are large pharma companies now as a way to sort of work around the IRA are going to start focusing on moving into kind of white space, rare disease areas where there are monopolies, where there's, you know, exemption from IRA. And we wanted to do, we want to shoot a little shot across the bow to say, hey, we're going to have we're going to be taking a lot of look at these things. We're taking a harder look at those types of transactions. Maybe, I don't know, that's pure conjecture. But I think irrespective of the size of that transaction, the same thought process probably would have applied. I think they're trying to, as Cody said, I think they're trying to inject a new regime a little bit into how people think about deals. Okay, I guess how much authority does FTC have at the end of the day? I mean, when we see these things come to court, uh, sort of like what would happen with Amgen Horizon uh, that they ended up settling. Uh, what are your thoughts on like how much authority the FTC really has? I want to answer this as a non-attorney. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably a little bit outside of, of my own domain. I, I do want to maybe though take that question and build a little bit on the last one. You know, if you look um, at what's not not necessarily what's been happening in life sciences, but on the other cases the FTC has been bringing, specifically in technology. Um, yes, you know, Microsoft Activision gets all the headlines because I think that was the biggest deal that they went after. But um, one of the ones that that really t- signaled first the regime change, it's like a $300 million um, VR deal, I think, for Meta, Facebook Meta, something like that. That was relatively small. So um, there's a lot of speculation why they picked that deal. But I, I would say that they are picking ones that are very clear in terms of their new principles that they're trying to apply. If it's bigger, it probably plays those principles more broadly speaking. So to answer your question, you know, maybe that's the the angle they're trying to take. Essentially, they have to establish precedent somehow, right? A lot of these things would be precedent setting. So from that perspective, we're kind of learning as we go, at least on some of the technology deals that have already been ruled on, what the degree of, of, uh, of bandwidth they have or to what extent they have some latitude there, I think beyond that, uh, beyond that, I would be waiting into legal waters. I'm not qualified <laughs> to speak. I can appreciate that. What do you, Dan? Do you have any? Do you want to wade into the legal waters? 
I've, I, I've learned to be uh, deferential to the attorneys in the room, so I'm gonna, I will also stay away from that. It's definitely not my area of expertise. Well, what about the, uh, this may fall into a similar category. What about the recent uh, updated draft merger guidelines that the FTC issued? Uh, do you guys think that they provide more transparency into how the agency is going to conduct its reviews? Um, do they potentially lower the bar for determining if a merger is anti-competitive? Um, what are your thoughts on how impactful the guidelines are, or might they signal that the FTC is moving in a new direction in some way? You're smiling, Cody. Oh, <laughs> they're pretty complicated uh, guidelines. Yeah, I I'll go first, and I know Cody Cody had to drop off camera for a second. I I will go first on that one, but I don't I don't think it is. I don't think the guidelines are really novel. I think if you go back and look at, and Cody, you know, rightfully pointed to one recent transaction. I think if you go and look at what they what the Trade Commission's been doing with private equity firms that are trying to do roll-ups and you know, recently challenged a roll-up transaction and forced divestitures. Um, you see what they did with Horizon, with the Horizon transaction. I think all those guidelines reflect actually that there is a there, there is a construct to what they're attempting to do here. They're defining, right? They are, when you talk about what, maybe I'll wade into the legal part of it just for a second. It's on the very basic Premise. The trade commission is constrained by the letter of a statute, right? The statutes, right? And the statutes say that we're going to prevent mergers that are anti-competitive. And what the trade commission is trying to do with its guidelines is to kind of broaden their own definition of what is anti-competitive. And the fact that you're breaking up roll-up transactions, they now they brag in one of their more recent pronouncements, actually brag about the fact that they have challenged three vertical M&A transactions, which typically the Trade Commission didn't challenge vertical M&A transactions. I think there's in those guidelines is just sort of they're laying the, la the groundwork that, hey, look, our interpretation of anti-competitive behavior has expanded and you should probably get comfortable with that. That that would be my read of what those guidelines are telling folks. Any your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think the um, definitely agree on the on the extension of what is considered anti-competitive um I, I think if you you look at um the general signals that they're sending i think uh there's a bit of a time constraint in their ability to enact these things by the political cycle um like 2024 isn't that far away you're talking primaries already <laughs> there's a change of of uh of presidential power you know because you're vacating ftc and then you're kind of going the other direction again so i i do think there's a Bit of a ticking time bomb feeling to the whole thing just to see if what they can lock in near term or at least in terms of precedent in the event that whatever reason there was a change of power okay um along those lines they've recently announced um that they're gonna take action on drug manufacturers based on improper patent listings in the fda orange book and that they would factor that into future m a i guess how big of an issue is that for um the big pharma players. I, I don't. I don't know that I have a perspective on that one. I. I again. I come back to when you see things like that. It, it did probably lead me to wonder. You know, are they are they attempting to tie some of the, you know, the concerns around this upcoming patent cliff, which in general should be a real positive thing for 
the American people that you're going to have these products now. They're going to be available to you at much lower cost as there's a loss of exclusivity coming up. And whether there's concern now around some of the behaviors that pharmas have engaged in in the past that we all agree, you know, again, sort of it violates the, the contract they have with the American people that we've all agreed, okay, you get some period of time and sell the drugs, protect you from competition. But then after that, those drugs become available to folks at a much lower cost. I don't know if this is maybe the Trade Commission, again, just sort of sending a shot across the bow, in addition to a shot across the bow on the IRA, a shot across the bow on, we're going to be watching behaviors with this upcoming looming patent cliff. Um, but again, that's pure conjecture. Yeah, you know, on the Orange Book, um, it is the lifeblood of a lot of formal operations that people do look at that. But I would I would say that, you know, maybe it's more internally focused than externally. I think it, it would be pretty rare that most people took Orange Book that literally. Usually there's a degree of decomposition, understanding the legal analysis. But you could always, I guess, make the argument that, you know, if someone sees wrong data that that, that may dissuade them from investigating further. So I, I think there's maybe some legitimate question mark there, much akin to other uh, federally regulated sources in life sciences. So, for example, there's been a lot of investigations on clinicaltrials.gov and issues, plenty of issues there. So if it was essentially just data hygiene standards, then that might be, a, uh, I think what most people would think is a pretty positive step forward. If it became scrutinizing the quality of patents, I think that would be next level just because it's a different agency. So from that standpoint, agency to agency coordination is something that they do outline in the new guidance. Um, but I, I think that one would, it, it's kind of following a bit of a pattern. If you look at even the first 10 drugs announced for IRA, everyone made a lot of the Novo situation there. Um, mm -hmm. So Novo, Novo's asset rolling that up, that uh, you had essentially a single active ingredient, but you had plus or minus the vitamin and they treated it basically all is the same. And it gets down to really, really finite um, decisions about what is considered similar, what is considered different. You know, I think FTC might be doing something similar here of scrutinizing decisions that are made by other agencies potentially. So I, I do think that if that trend continued to hold where agencies are essentially or rather dependent on other agencies to enforce these broader policy provisions, that that would be a big change. And I think that's one I think that people are paying very close attention to. So we have the patents and rebates and sort of all these new areas to worry about. Is there anything else out there um, that the industry is worried that FTC might weigh in on that's unexpected or um, that could be within their domain? I don't I don't know that. I've heard folks speculating about where the FTC could go next. I just think that you know, we're listing off areas where I think people viewed some of these things as not being necessarily the purview of the Trade Commission. And I think that that action alone, that they've started to wade into areas and have different interpretations of the authority they have, I think that alone causes folks to wonder what is next? Like, where could this go? What are things we have to think about? And injecting that uncertainty into deal rooms, you know, you know, whether that's the primary benefit of these actions or just, you know, a coincidental benefit of those actions, I think it, it's already happened. So I think people are with forget about the specifics, like where are they going to go next? I think folks just view it as 
the Trade Commission is definitely focused and we have to be thoughtful about deals that we enter into and be prepared for you know, the fact that they may not be looking for the types of concessions they were looking for before, right? I mean, as Cody mentioned, in the past where you you thought the Trade Commission would go when you entered into even horizontal mergers is they would go to disposition of assets and they would push for the disposition of certain assets. And so folks could sit down and they could model out, all right, so if we had to get rid of X, Y, and Z products, does the deal still make sense? Do our MPV still hold? If that's not if that's not the remedy that the Trade Commission is going to be looking for going forward, I mean, you know, it just it just creates uncertainty. So going back specifically to uh, our industry, biopharmaceuticals, I, 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 for me, the underlying question remains: um, Will what we've seen with the Amgen Horizon merger? And the ongoing review of Pfizer CGen, even though that's a very different deal, as Cody pointed out, uh, is there a chilling effect here? Um, particularly when we look at the situation on the ground where pharma companies have a lot of money to potentially spend on deal making and they've got major patent cliffs coming up. Are the is this activity, are these somewhat unanswered questions chilling on the idea of the larger uh, M&A deals that could be under discussion, that uh, big acquirers could be thinking about? I'll let either of you go first. Maybe on the on the chilling effect, you know, if, as uh, Dan mentioned, the whole, the whole process impact is non-trivial, particularly for larger transactions. So if you were thinking about a larger transaction in particular that was very contingent on a particular milestone, so trial readouts and so forth, you mm-hmm. know, the the added, for example, documentation or complexity that that may put some deals under stress. Um, example, you just you never know when the trial is going to go wrong. If a trial went wrong, could that blow up a deal because it took too long, frankly, to pull it off relative to the trial timeline? I mean, these things could always happen. So I think we just have to be transparent about that. But the chilling effect at the lower levels below these, you know, larger $25 billion plus deals right now is, you know, Dan has some pretty good data earlier that just talked about relatively constant frequency. So I think until we start seeing Dices or Nimbus or, you know, essentially any of these more run-of-the-mill, quote-unquote, um, biotech M&As start to get uh, more heavily scrutinized, I think it's hard to make an argument because those are the majority of deals, right? That That is volume. Mm-hmm. The ones that were essentially exclusively discussing here almost the $25 billion. Remember the prior to Amgen Horizon, we hadn't seen anything that big since pre-COVID. That was, I think last one of yeah. those guys or, or bigger was BMSLG. So, you know, it just kind of shows that, that some of these ones that dominate the headlines aren't necessarily the, the median case. I completely agree with that. I think that we are, everyone does get focused by the stuff that hits the, you know, the Wall Street Journal front page to the Wall Street Journal, but that is not, at least in my opinion, it's not what drives the biopharma industry. I think what drives the biopharma industry where you get the virtuous cycle is when you have your typical sort of specialist investors who are supporting companies that are developing novel products that may not even get to commercial stage. But if there are exits for those companies and there's a return of capital, and obviously there's a return of capital in a positive way to shareholders, that money then that capital begins to cycle back through additional investments. It builds some level of confidence in the industry and folks begin to then get enthusiastic about new and novel ideas and invest in it. And that's 
that when those deals are occurring, that's what really has more of a halo effect on the industry. The big splashy deals, again, you know, honestly, look, honestly, when you watch those deals happen, they can actually have the opposite effect because those are potential acquirers. Horizon was a potential acquirer of a bunch of orphan companies that were out there, right? Uh, yeah. CJ was a potential acquirer of companies, not often, but you know, at least did one or two deals. When those companies get consolidated, sometimes the smaller companies look at it and say, well, there goes a potential buyer of my business, right? And that, so that can, that, that can also have a chilling effect on M&A in the in the more important part of the sector, at least in my world, the more important part of the sector than what the Trade Commission has done with Horizon and CJ. Okay, well, um, I think we'll wrap it there. That was a really good discussion, uh, Cody, Dan. Uh, thank you both. Uh, this has been the uh, second Script M&A podcast fo- focusing this time on FTC. And uh, thank you everyone for listening and have a great day.